All right, everybody, I appreciate you being here. Everybody on the playback, if you did not see my post and and get any bit of a tease on what we're going to talk about, I wanted to continue our conversation that we've been discussing a little bit on structure versus flexibility, not just what can help us with ease of use or or making it just seem a little bit behaviorally better, but are there any studies that show one thing works better than another? And last week we we discussed how a rigid meal plan, something completely mapped out. And in that particular study, researchers literally giving subjects every meal and snack they would consume for a year, just two weeks at a time. You get to pick the meals you want from this meal exchange list. You come pick them up, you get that food versus people who got the same allotment just in money, monetary support to go then get whatever food they want. So the ultimate flexibility and then then see how they do. And it was a 300 and 350 percent improvement in weight loss for those people who had the highest structure. It, it was a little bit lackadaisical in total weight loss because of what was allotted for calorically. Clearly, even the people given the food ate much, much, much more than that, or they would have had a better result. But all that to the side, I wanted to take a, a, another step into this topic and look at just food source quality. If we're going to champion flexible dieting, which my definition is eating the foods you like in the amount you need to stay aligned with your health values and goal. So foods you like, flexibility, you get to pick it. Even if it's a structured plan, you may you may select the structure. You may say, I'm going to eat this for breakfast every day, but it's the food you like in the amounts you need that allow you to, to hit your goal, to stay aligned with your health values and, and meet your, your immediate goal. Again, different layers of flexibility because you could eat nothing but broccoli for your carbohydrates. You could eat nothing but M&Ms for your, your carbohydrate. It's your choice. You can, you can mathematically make either one work for the same energy balance. So I wanted to dive in and see specifically because whenever I look at research, it's typically what's coming to me through some kind of a feed or a journal article title, something uh, in, a, in, a, in an app that I've you know tied to RSS feeds, that kind of thing. But uh, when I do something like this in preparation for a talk or a lecture or our own research reviews, I'm seeking out information topically that I just may not have ever encountered otherwise. So I was a little bit shocked when I looked at this topic of just the glycemic index, the complexity of carbohydrate, and how much research was actually out there. And it was kind of a weird outcome for me. We'll see if it was weird for you guys by the time we're finished. So does glycemic index matter for weight loss and obesity prevention? Examination of the evidence of fast compared with slow carbs. I think that's pretty well stated just as the topic as most of us have heard about or learned about the glycemic index. As I mentioned in my post, kind of in the 1990s, maybe early 2000s is when it was popularized by the zone diet and balanced diets and that sort of thing, 30, 40, 30 stuff really gave some visual names and heuristics to the the insulin model of dieting. And I, I think there is still quite a chasm between what I'm going to show you today in the research and what most people believe because of that entire era, which talked about insulin, insulin, insulin. Um, man, you could, you know, the farther you go back in my history and writing about nutrition, you see an increasingly heavy attention toward that model because that's what we all learn in that era. Uh, this, by the way, you know, I pulled it from the Advances in Nutrition International Review Journal, but I think it was also another place I saw the same study. I think it was in Obesity, the journal, and maybe even Nature or Science. So uh, this this seemed to get a lot of uh, a lot of support. Those are the kind of you know, journals that you're going to see go through a, a heavier peer review process. And to even apply to be in those journals means you think you've got a heavyweight kind of article. You know, you've got really something that a lot of people are going to be interested in. So I'll show you why that fits this particular meta-analysis. 
So first of all, as I said, the glycemic index was introduced in 1981 as a means to classify foods according to their effect on postprandial blood glucose, post-eating. Since then, more than 10,000 scientific articles have been published on gas or, or glycemic index. Uh, several popular books, of course, talking about zone, have extolled the purported health benefits of low, I, I was going to say gastrointestinal, it's uh, glycemic index diets. Uh, uh, a 2021 Google search for fast carbs, even something like that. It's like that kind of a, of a cliche, unscientific term produced 47,000 results. So, so really just showing why this is in culture and why it's worth looking at. Several highly cited reviews have been published in health publications of high glycemic index diets in a 2015 scientific consensus statements concluded diets low, so more complex. Low glycemic index means more complex were probably relevant to the prevention of obesity. So listen to that. I mean, a, a scientific consensus where you know these these are people who were uh, in the industry, very, very much integrated into research, and and they were already using language like I don't know, I'm not really familiar with the research, not my field, but it it seems likely, seems logical. I've heard all that chatter over there. So again, all that just to say that this really permeated deeply into not just pop culture, but nutrition coaches, dietitians. You know, everybody interested in in weight loss. So I, I promise I'm not going to get too heavy into some of this reading, but I wanted it all to be here just to be, you know, part of a record. To clarify whether dietary glycemic index is important for weight control and obesity prevention, we searched PubMed and Cochrane database of systemic systematic reviews for meta-analyses of observational studies that compared BMI, blah, 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 blah. L let me just skip to the fact that the point where they say we could not find anything really researching this until they backed it out and were more generalized. So they they looked at uh, let me let me skip down here. Um, doo -doo -doo -doo. They they ended up searching for just glycemic index, body mass index. They wanted randomized control trials, but they had to include observational studies. I'll explain that in a minute. And so they finally found 892 results, 35 publications pro provided required data, blah, blah, blah. All that just to say that when they looked for super, super specific epidemiological random control trials on, did anybody actually test if there was anything to glycemic index comparing one to the other? It was very, very, very low. They had to take a broader swath of, of reviews and look at those 10,000 studies that were potentially out there with their inclusion criteria, which I'll get to in a second. Um, they, they intentionally kept it categorically broad. Categorically, they, they divided it into several sections, but they wanted to look at everything that was out there so they weren't so narrow that they ended up self-selecting what was either going to be very supportive of their premise or not. So a total of 35, here's what they ended up with in their selection criteria, total of 35 observational studies, including data from 43 co cohorts, provided information on baseline BMI across, um, you know, all the, the, the types of ways you could cut up the, the glycemic index. These included 18 cohorts of women, eight cohorts of men, 17 co-ed, with a total of almost 2 million adults. Uh, and this went across the globe. They even had a chart that, that broke it down country by country. So in the observational studies, which are epidemiological, which means survey studies, we're, we're looking for correlations. We're looking for if this group of people over here uh, and some of them could have been longitudinal, um, but most of them were were set up as a questionnaire. You know, do you eat this way? How do you eat? Let's get some measurements. Let's run this out six months a year. All these studies were actually in this meta-analysis and position paper. But, but for these observational studies, they kept it, as I said, as broad as possible just to make sure they're not missing anything. 
then they did they, they looked at all the randomized control trials, which I'll get to in, in a little bit. So right off the bat, all of that to say almost 2 million subjects with 35 different studies were, were included in what they analyzed just to see if the glycemic index level of food could predict or directly control weight loss compared to you know, higher glycemic. So in the 27 cohorts for which statistical analyses were performed to compare BMI, so now they're looking at actual weight loss, uh, 12 showed no difference in BMI between the highest and lowest glycemic index groups. Seven indicated that BMI was lower in the highest glycemic index groups. And I'm going to show this in, in a little bit of statistical analysis I personally did on their meta-analysis uh, you know, toward the end. But, but look at that. Out of 27 cohorts, seven of them, so seven major studies, actually showed that when calories were accounted for, uh, the people who had the highest glycemic index actually lost the most weight or had lower BMIs. So right off the bat, you have to say, hmm, you know, maybe there's no causal relationship there. I don't think anybody would say you should eat all pure sugar. That's a better way to lose weight. But it certainly takes some wind out of the sails to say that low glycemic index food is the key. And probably some of you guys are already thinking ahead to things like how did they control isocalorically, you know, how, how tight were some of these studies? Again, we'll get to all that here in a second. So BMI was not the primary outcome in any of these epidemiological studies. Thus, even when statistical differences were reported, the results must have been viewed guardedly as BMI may be affected by many variables, such as total energy intake, as I just described, fiber intake, physical activity. So this is why the, the, it, they said in the beginning they just couldn't find the perfect study. Out of everything they were trying to search for, they had to keep broadening out and take a bigger view and almost take the entire topic in mass, which is why this was such a, a big, big meta-analysis. Um, I'm not going to go through all this, but but again, just to, just to point out that they were just not finding correlations where you could say, okay, here, here we have the perfect study. They absolutely had the best design, the best methods, and they showed isocalorically in in great controlled fashion in the study design that that lower glycemic index will always result in in less body fat collectively these results suggested that the significantly lower bmis observed in the highest dietary glycemic index groups were not attributable to lower energy intake lower fiber intake or higher levels of physical activity in contrast in four of the seven studies the reported that reported higher bmi so more obesity in the groups with the highest uh, dietary glycemic index, the results could be in part due to significantly higher total energy intake. So a lot of these studies, when people were saying, hey, sugar is bad for you, they, they were doing observational studies that did not control for calorie intake. So we just went through 50-ish years. I think they said 1981 was when this concept was first theorized and, and published. So in 50 or so years, 10,000 or so studies, this group is contending, this research group, that there's just not a great study even out there. So the, again, they have to take everything they possibly can, do massive statistical work. It, and that's what this study really was. If you look up the actual study, you, you'll have to wade through more stats than you've ever probably seen in a meta-analysis because this was truly an exercise of, of big data comparison, which, which really makes it an interesting way to, to do a meta-analysis. So in the 16, and, and we're still looking at these observational studies, in the 16 cohorts for which no statistical analysis was performed, so pretty light studies, maybe just questionnaires and you know, gathering data, not, not nothing that you could really, you know, publish in a, in a great journal. The average BMI for the lowest and highest glycemic index groups were virtually the same. So this was observed across male, female, mixed sex cohorts, et cetera. 
So like I said, I'm going to, I'm going to skip a lot of this narrative. I just wanted to put some of this in here so we'd have it. And, and now, um, Several epidemiological studies have reported the prevalence of overweight and obesity differs by very little across gastrointestinal categories. So even with all of that, what I would say, non sequitur type information, they said they were able to see that even though the prevailing opinion, even among scientists that you ask, does glycemic index value, does the complexity of carbohydrate affect obesity and so forth. And most people would just reflexively say yes. They said most of the actual studies show that it just doesn't matter. So in these different cohorts, in one, the percentage of individuals with obesity was essentially the same uh, in, in quintiles of, of five, one, et cetera. Uh, and then they went through a, a ton of, of well-known studies within that are popularly cited within this glycemic index type research. Okay, so now randomized control trials. This is where you're actually doing work in a study. This group is going to get this. This group is going to get this. Now we can try to compare apples to apples the best we can. All of those observational studies still have value because, as I've said before, that's almost like instead of forcing a study where people know they're in a study and so behavior might change and so forth, this is just kind of seeing how things have occurred in the wild. Let's let's go back, gather as much data as we can and and then see how this happens in real life. So that that has value. But I think this is the sharper edge of the spear when you when you can really design a good study. So eight publications presented a total of 30 meta-analyses. So it's a, it's a lot. This is another massive undertaking on just this side of their position paper. Eight publications presented a total of 30 meta-analyses of randomized control trials comparing low glycemic and high glycemic diets. So, so now we're doing literal comparison with groups. The RCTs in these meta-analyses were behavioral interventions in which participants received dietary advice. In some instances, participants were supplied with key foods that were aligned with the intervention uh, for the glycemic index. These studies examine the effects of the dietary glycemic index on several anthropometric outcomes, including body weight, BMI, body fat, waist circumference. And again, if you if you guys want to look at the study, they had unbelievable um, detailed tables to look at and compare all these different variables and how each different study that they would look at in each different meta-analysis they would study all the variables that they checked, cross-analyzing those things, uh, you really have to understand statistic modeling to, to appreciate that. But it's all there if you want. I just want to spend our time with it. Uh, here's, here's the bottom line. With the randomized control trials, so the ones where high glycemic index foods were tested against low glycemic index foods, controlled for amount, controlled for total energy balance, all of the things you would want in good good trials. So a total of these, these meta-analyses, which included 360 total trials, uh, and this is separate when I said those longitudinal or observational studies had almost 2 million. I don't know. They didn't have that stat here, but probably about the same amount. Now, here's what's amazing. When you look at the results of all 30 of those meta-analyses, that included a total of 360 different trials. And you look at the outcome, controlled calorically and per amount of carb with the variable being high versus low glycemic carbohydrates. And you look at the result of every single one of those 360 trials covered in 30 meta-analyses. And you add up and average every single one of those studies all that occurred is that the low glycemic index people, people eating more oatmeal, drinking less Mountain Dew, more brown rice instead of white rice, more fiber, less sugar, they lost a grand total out of 360 trials, which could have been millions of subjects, tens of thousands at least, they lost exactly 0.1 pound more. So for the trouble of eating a higher quality, healthier, lower glycemic diet, 
these people, it was virtually statistically zero difference. Now, I'm going to open this up for some discussion right away. I want to say, first of all, I don't like that outcome. I wanted to see that higher quality food mattered for weight loss. I really thought that's what this was going to show. When I went in to prepare this particular research review, in the flow of what we've been talking about in the last couple of weeks, knowing I'm also getting the content for the book I'm writing right now, I wanted this chapter in my book to be about why high quality food matters. In this shows, it does not, at least for pure weight loss. If you want to say higher quality food does lead to more weight loss, then there you go. 0.1 pound over the course of your diet, you could you could have lost an extra couple of ounces. But there's more to it than that. And, and this is what I want to, to to get out of the details with you guys. But let me let me go through one of their conclusion points and then a couple of my prompts that I, I want to ask you guys. High glycemic meals consistently result in greater glucose in, in insulin secretion. We can measure that. That's why the insulin model of obesity and health exists. There are books written about this, tons of books by great researchers and physicians. And it appears mostly to be just on this observation that we know high glycemic carbohydrates mean you produce insulin much faster. We know insulin drives storage of energy, including body fat. And so all measurable... Yet, these findings are consistent, even though they're consistent with car the carbohydrate insulin model of obesity and, and the hypothesis that low glycemic index diets are associated with greater weight loss and reduced risk of obesity. However, data from these observational studies and meta-analyses of randomized control trials do not substantiate that superiority. Once again, for weight loss and obesity. I don't think that's all we have to be concerned about. But it's the biggest factor. That, that's what most of us want from our diets, I think, is weight management, weight loss, body composition control, body composition change. So as I open this up for you guys, and, and I, I really want some great you know, dialogue and, and questions and, and your thoughts, I do want to bring out some of these other factors other than obesity and weight loss, which one that I didn't even list would be just how you feel. If you eat a, a meal full of sugar versus a complex carbohydrate meal and you have those results of insulin and so forth, I think that matters on your lethargy versus mental acuity and how you feel energy. Those are also reasons why this insulin model has been supported for so long. This did not quantify in any way the impact on overall health and immunity and longevity. So again, I think if you took out a completely longitudinal study, 80 years over the course of people's lives, and you said, hey, these people here ate nothing but sugar. These people ate high quality carbohydrates who had the highest instance of cancer, cardiovascular disease, health, et cetera. I think you see some differences that, that you want to you know, limit your sugar at least a little bit. Uh, certainly doesn't, you know, that leads into things like GI here. I use it for gastrointestinal health, uh, not glycemic index, phytonutrients, those, those micronutrients, and then even the behavioral consistency. I think most of us intuitively know, we objectively know in our own behavior that when you eat a salad and you feel satisfied and you're full, you don't think, wow, that was so good. I want three more salads or who, man. After that chicken breast and baked potato, I'm so hungry, I want another 14 ounces of baked chicken. But when it comes to ice cream or donuts or candy, you know, that's where we, with highly palatable foods, end up overdoing it. Now, again, that should be covered in those observational studies because in cultures, different countries – different you know families and people in those two million subjects that they covered, it still did not lead to higher levels of, of obesity and higher BMI in people. 
in general. N not all of those were looking at dietary intervention. They were just observationally looking at cultures who ate more or less sugar. So overall, I can't even say that my subpoints here are indicative that even with all of what I just said aside, you should still not eat sugar. That's not my intent. But I think for some people, a higher sugar diet is more problematic. But what it does give us credence for, and this is where I'm going to let you guys come in, is the entire premise of actual flexible dieting. Uh, because I know sitting in front of me, for example, is Dr. Kevin Brunacini, who has lost 130 pounds in his life, has kept it off for 10 years, now does nutrition work as well as is a professor of nursing practice. And he eats a lot of shitty food. Um, you know, he, he, he loves Reese's puff cereal stuff, like stuff I wouldn't even consider food. Like he eats that stuff. I have my vices of not so healthy food that I eat, but I would venture to say 80, 85% of my food is super, super healthy. I mean, so far today, I've had a half a cup of oatmeal, some dried cherries, a scoop of protein powder, uh, some flaxseed meal in my oatmeal, a banana. Uh, I had ground turkey. I had brown rice. I had broccoli. Um, and I've had, I've had one one cookie, you know, that's kind of my pre-workout. I'm going to work out after this. So, so most of my food is healthy, but I still eat some poor quality, you could say, you know, sugary food. Um, but I, you know, this, this is really interesting. Like I'm going to have to rethink some of what I even discuss and put in this next book because of how massive this look was at all of the research when it comes down to sugar and the glycemic index. So that said, uh, you guys jump in. Kevin, I'll let you have the first swing here. It's not surprising. I'm sure you're familiar with uh, Dr. Hall's uh, study from, I think, 2017. There's I have two more around that same time as well that really just says the thing, same thing account for calories, oversimplifying it, then your composition or your, your percentage of sugar to do fibrous carbs is futile, you know, just eat what you can be consistent with. Um, of course that's oversimplified. I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily from a semantic perspective, call it poor. I just say nutrient dense versus something that's more calorie dense because there's a time and place for strategy to utilize something that's more sugary in nature versus something that's more fibrous. So, and that's really at the end of the day, but what it comes down to is, context as always, but the strategy of how you want to utilize your nutrition to serve you. Um, so, I, you know, sugar is not a dependent risk variable for obesity. It's an independent, meaning you can have high or low. If long as the calories at the end of the day are equated for, then it can, it will serve as an independent variable, depending on the ultimate variable of calories in calories out again, oversimplifying it, but that is, that is what study after study, the general consensus is, but you know, the, I would say the, the second bit, I would say it's probably the biggest independent variable is going to be the behavioral aspect because that's, what's going to help control hunger. And that's where sugar can really take, take the blow is that you're going to have, you're more than likely going to have hunger fluctuations more so if you're eating more than what you need for sugar-based foods um, and ultra processed foods and, course there is a study of that where you eat and i think we did one a review on that in fact but um if you consume ultra processed foods your study showed you you likely consume about 500 calories extra than what's necessary so there is there's evidence for ultra um hyper palatable foods and what that does to hunger signals and cues of which that can tip the balance when it comes to calories calories in calories out and affect behaviors for you know, how you, how you go about eating and structure your day accordingly, blah, blah, blah. But, um, I'm not surprised it's, it, you know, if anything, I think it just reduces people's neuroses to have to eat so cleanly or have those dogmatic approaches that it must be like this when 
you want to go for it. If that's what truly makes you happy without these righteousness and binging, go for it. But if you're just a douchebag who's just touting this is the only way to go about it, again, to each your own, but that's that's not how it works for everyone, whether it's behavioral, cultural, preferal, preferential. That's just not how healthcare is. So it has to come down to when and when, when and if and how much. Well, you, you you highlighted two things I think that are really important because I, I might not have spent enough time on them. You said equated for calories and the fact that a lot of other studies have shown that it is total energy intake and the the best diet for you is the one you can stick to. And there are plenty of, of reviews and position papers looking at different studies that show if people are eating the right amount of calories for them, you can't find any difference between eating a high carb diet, a high fat diet, a balanced diet, a this diet, a that diet. It's all total energy. And that, of course, is the foundational block. But I still was surprised that comparing the randomized control trials and observational studies, because of what you said, because because of extra hunger, because of highly palatable foods, that people do eat more. So why doesn't that equate even in the observational studies? And I think it's because, first of all, I'm, I'm not sure statistically that we can hang our hat totally on that because we still have an obesity rate you know, at 50% in our country and it used to be 2%. And so again, there, there are more factors there. But when you look at energy expenditure decreases and total energy increases, that seems to wash out statistically over 2 million subjects looked at. But when you get to those trials where they really compared high to low glycemic, high to low glycemic, this group gets this, that's when you can say, wow, there just really was not that much difference. So, um, you know, I, I'm still, I'm still going to choose to eat higher quality food most of the time because I do value the uh, the phytonutrients and the things I, I think we can we can clearly with some logic show that the the vitamins, minerals, and those healthy things actually are better for our health. But this was intentionally this meta analysis was intentionally looking at just weight loss and obesity. So so glad you highlighted those things. Are, are you jumping in, Stacy? I see a wave there. Uh, so I have a question. Hmm? Um, do we know how long? a change in diet impacts somebody's um, response to food, like just your, your gut response, your insulin response, your glucose, your glycogen storage response, all of those things that factor into hunger and how your body would be metabolizing these healthier foods. Cause it takes a long time to get obese. You don't get obese overnight. So the systems that, are supporting that lifestyle do they just shut off once we start eating healthy foods well so what what i really like about your question is i think if i'm interpreting right it it aligns still <laughs> with our perception all of us who grew up in the last 20 or 30 years around nutrition steeped in the insulin model information your question is okay there's this acuteness and there's a study that's nice but what about A1C and what about long-term effects and and glucose and insulin sensitivity change? And, you know, you become a type two diabetic and you get hypertension. And, and, and again, we tend to, because of that classic insulin model, blame it on sugar. When in fact, even studies with diabetics, we show it's the saturated fat and the calorie overage in general that does far more damage there than actual sugar or carbs. So I think we really still have to look back at total energy, less energy expenditure. And, um, you know, I even heard Dr. Peter Atia talking about this with Dr. Huberman this week in a podcast, you know, the, the fact that saturated fat is kind of the enemy. I mean, it, you know, one of the biggest indicators of cardiovascular disease is LDL formation. Uh, in accumulation. So, and <clears throat> don't get that from carbs like we used to think. Well, and you know, it's, it's kind of funny because the, the cardiologists are saying that, you know, we have spent 
a lot of time studying all of these things that factor into weight gain and obesity that lead to cardiovascular risk with the outlier being obesity. And now they're putting all of their attention onto obesity uh, to see, to because they have to confirm the, the direct impact on cardiovascular risk, just like they have the other areas that they've studied. Um, and one of those ways that they're doing this is by using these, like these, these GLP-1 inhibitors that are directly affecting the body's ability to, to produce or, or stimulating insulin release, which is having that cascade effect on all of this to see how their weight comes down, their BMI comes down and, and the risk for different cardiovascular diseases come down because they've studied the risk of blood pressure on it. They've studied the risk of diabetes on it. They've studied the risk of all these things, but they have never focused solely on obesity until now, mm. but they have, it, it's through the, the drugs that are impacting this whole insulin and, and these hormones that they're able to get a mechanism of action to control it, to be able to see the effect. Does that make sense? Yeah. And, and you're right. You know, looking at just the, the status <clears throat> of obesity, once you're there and, and trying to not stay stuck in the weeds of all of the things of, you know, how we get there is a factor. But one of the things I want to say too, is you're bringing in intervention models a lot of the glycemic index banter from the 80s forward, again, are just it's not sugar or, quote, bad food versus good food. For decades, people have been afraid to eat bananas or watermelon or white rice because, oh, my gosh, the sugar, the sugar, the sugar. You know, Joe, this protein bar that could have otherwise pretty good ingredients, it has three grams of sugar. I'm not supposed to have sugar. And and I think to Kevin's point about just being neurotic about glycemic index, this at least gives us a, a pretty big sledgehammer to say that's just not necessary, which we've always done. You know, I've never told clients to be afraid of high glycemic fruit and that sort of thing. But um, you know, it's it's the whole insulin model. What what food does to blood sugar in increasing insulin, and how that has made people just just fearful of of certain foods. I think that's kind of the take home of all of this work. But isn't part of it how quickly your body responds? No, I mean, that's that's what they're saying. We used to think that that is the insulin model and it's really just not. Uh, your body can handle things better based on your chronic state of ability for glucose disposal and things like that. So some people are better equipped to deal with sugar. And to your first point about it becoming chronic, you can become less and less able to do so. Uh, but at the same time, it's just total energy that matters almost completely as a consequence. And, and remember what I just said, that saturated fat and just too many calories does more for that person's ability to process carbohydrates as the carbs do. Kevin, were you jumping back in? To me, a, a line or a flaw in the logic of the insulin model is if if insulin is so evil, then, then why is there such a why is there such a party for GLP agonists? Because that's what they do is stimulate insulin production and to create that cascade hormonally and to you know, in addition to create uh, um, not well, anorexia. They they they're just they're not as hungry because there's GI slowing, emptying of of things. Therefore, they don't eat. So you got that variable in terms of calorie intake. But the biggest mechanism mechanism of action is insulin production. So if if there's such a disdain with that logic of insulin model, then therefore these medications should do nothing to weight loss when in fact they do just that very well. So it, it, you know, it just makes no sense that insulin is fear, not to say there's not implications. There always is for everything, but you know, I think what'd be most relevant to apply glycemic index is if there's postprandial hunger 
for an individual, then you may need to look into how their composition is set up and maybe they are just overstimulating or uh, hyperphagic for whatever that meal setup was. Therefore, you, if they had more sugar, then maybe you need to replace it with more fiber so that they blunt that postprandial response so they don't feel as hunger as hungry. Therefore, they're not overeating or have that risk to do so. And to me, that's where lately, you know, five years, that's where it's been the most relevant to apply such principles. Otherwise, it's just, I don't want to say completely futile, but it's just, it's there's just no need to have to be so neurotic about it. Well, to, to your point too, I just want to tack this on, Kevin. Um, what we know about hunger in the hypothalamus and, and because of insulin and blood sugar's response in the way it drives or suppresses hunger Sometimes that insulin is very helpful for that reason, because you get those elevations in some of that storage. You, you get an anabolic environment catapulted much more quickly because of a higher glycemic food. And so, you know, that's that's where you just can't say it's completely wrong. Total anecdotal here. But for example, if I eat half a cup of oatmeal and fruit and protein powder for some reason, in 60 to 90 minutes, I'm getting hungry. Within two hours, I'm really hungry. If I eat one cookie, I may not be hungry for three hours. And it makes no sense except for the fact that that probably the insulin increase that was so much faster just dampened that hypothalamic hunger response. And so calories being equated for, you know, maybe it's about the same, but it just really, you know, person to person, context to context to your, just, just to repeat you, it's just not evil necessarily to think that the the sugar is the bad guy can have some benefit. Amy jumping in. I am. I actually, I have a second, so I'm going to. Right. Such an interesting comment from Kevin too, because I thought that same thing, like bodybuilders who inject insulin, like they are not morbidly obese um, and they use it to cut. I mean, not to bulk in a lot of cases. So that's clearly not the one thing, but it does bring up kind of the whole point with all these discussions about these nuances of diet that everybody is looking for the thing right? Like everybody wants to find that one thing rather than look at like their entire diet in this broad context of eating a whole food nutrient dense diet. They're like, but if it's sugar, like, so no white rice, right? If I cut out white rice, I'm gonna lose weight. Um, you know, if I just do this, that's the, the thing. And I think we're so myopic in our view of the human body and the way it functions. And when you do start to look at these broad studies, you start to realize that it's not that simple and that you can't, you know, study these things in isolation. It just doesn't work because you might find a study that correlates with what you think and then 10 more that don't. And then trying to figure out why the 10 don't and the one did and what those people did and what they're, you know, all those factors, it becomes such a web, you know, like the human body is so complex. And this is such a good way to look at like so many studies showing basically the same outcome, even in varying degrees of diet intake. Just fascinating. Yeah, very, very well said. And, and that's why I try to almost every other research review, I, I try to find just one simple little study that we can spend our time and almost learn a little bit about research. But it's hard to avoid or ignore these big meta analyses when you can take that big step back and say, wow, let's look at what everybody is looking at for the last span of time. And so you're right. It's, you know, you, you get too close to the, the tree to see the, the forest sometimes. And great comment about insulin and bodybuilders, true. I mean, because anabolism is anabolism. Even if it's a positive calorie or positive energy place, sometimes that does spur great benefits in the the, the kind of training exercise and activity that lead to better outcomes. Hence, hence why I always said a Pop-Tart or Reese's peanut butter cup is a great pre-workout food, because sometimes you want that insulin or sugar response. Like that's the time to get it. If you're okay with some food that's pretty, pretty, I wouldn't want to say unhealthy, um, just not very healthy, it's just doesn't have nutrient quality and density, then that's a place that you may get some better benefit from something that's really, really benign and, you know, quote, delicious. Dense. Just say delicious. Okay. <laughs> I mean, yeah, try, so, try to be. Go ahead, Stacey. So this study that was just concluded and the, out, the outcomes are going to be coming in 20. 23, 2024, it's called Surmount MMO. And MMO, Dr. Nissen 
coined it as morbidity, mortality in obesity. So they, they're looking at these diabetic drugs on people that are chronically obese over uh, BMI over or greater than 27 and no one has diabetes. <clears throat> and so they're looking at how they affected not just their uh, primary outcome measurement was cardiovascular disease and reversible risk, risk factors, obesity being a reversible risk factor, trying to prove that. The secondary outcomes would be the onset of type two diabetes, renal death or end-stage renal disease in a variety of quality of life measures. That's where I think there's gonna be a scientist, like some kind of study that's looking at the quality of life direct measures directly linked to obesity and as it comes down, and then like you take that information and you can apply a model to it to uh, a goal like something for people to to i want to lose weight because studies have shown that i'm going to be i'm going to feel happy or some you know what i'm saying and then they'll have the support to do what they need to do in order to get there and not just i'm going to lower my glycemic rate or, or you know what i'm saying like it has to come through a different channel for these things to be addressed and pushed out because they're never going to just study giant thing on the benefit of losing weight because it's so different from every person. Like right. think of your, some, some people want, need to lose 20. Some people need to lose five. Some people don't need to lose, but they want to. So that's a, that's a phenomenal thing that you just said to, to start, which is BMI over 27, non-diabetic. And that's how nuanced some of this can be to Amy's point. Like what if, as we're looking at glycemic index here, what if you were able to parse out and say, what well, for this population over here, it really was effective. And I don't even mean like, you know, body type and phenotype type stuff, just, just for different medical status. Um, and then the second thing you said, the, the quality of life piece, that's what I don't think we're going to know for decades. For example, I constantly question this. I, I see my family history of obesity and just ill health. And I see, okay, that's, that's my genetic base. Here's what I have done. And I'm just an N of one, but how hard am I working? And will it even buy me one extra year of life compared to my mom or dad? Will, will I have had lesser quality of life? Cause I could have been a little bit looser or more flexible. And I would have had this, I would have had more fun perhaps and live the exact same. Like those are the things that studies like this are, are good for. Cause we're starting to see that, Hey, the insulin model, for example, is just not everything you can enjoy a little bit of sugar and it's not going to change that much. But to your point, Stacy, it, it's, we're, we're just in a weird context where we're, we're, we're still on the top of the wave that just keeps going higher and higher and higher and higher and higher and higher in terms of obesity and weight loss or obesity in general. And so, you know, who knows what we're going to find out in the next 20 years. Well, and that's one of the things that this they're trying to push out is the uh, overcoming the reimbursement reluctance from insurance because being overweight, <clears throat> even clinically overweight, doesn't it's not just an emotional, you know what I'm saying? Like there's a, they're trying to show these, like these, these legitimate reasons that this has to be addressed. You can't, it's not just, they need to eat less. Like there's, there's, they, you know, and it doesn't just happen. Somebody's not obese at 35 and then all of a sudden they are at 40. And so like, they're trying to, show first that it has to be addressed because it's a risk factor. And then they're going to peel back the onion on all these other little things that they're going to probably call signs along the way. Cause it doesn't happen overnight. Do you know what I'm, mm -hmm. but like what you have to go through to prove common sense in this country. So the insurance, so it can just actually be uh, talked about, I guess is crazy. Yep. And then you, we have all the other conflating variables, such as you do 
an observational study and say, okay, these people with this BMI or this, you know, their sugar intake was higher, lower, et cetera. Some of those are indicators of other lifestyle choices. Like if somebody eats nothing but sugar, they may be lower socioeconomic because that's just cheaper stuff at the grocery store. And if they're lower socioeconomic, maybe they have higher stress and then maybe they have to work twice as many hours. And now all of a sudden, everything that we're attributing to high sugar had nothing to do with sugar. It was all of these other factors. So, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to stop us here and, and I want to bring up something that's going to sound really weird. Um, and, and Heather, I'll definitely, you know, chat, uh, chat with you about this. Um, it's it's a it's a weird thing, but it was it was such a great piece of information just to learn how to view research. There was a forensic psychologist who was an expert witness at the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial. This is a stretch. Like I'm going way out in the weeds on this one, guys. Stop the recording right now if if you don't want to listen to this. It has nothing to do with glycemic index. But this forensic psychologist was interviewed by Lex Friedman this week. And, and they were talking about marital fidelity, a spouse cheating on a spouse. And he said, what do you th what's your perspective on that? And he asked, should a cheating spouse come clean and be honest if the other spouse has no idea? I'll, I'll get there in a second. This will be worth it. She said, this is my personal opinion. After 15 or 20 years of forensic psychology applied to marriage, I think the guilt, you cheated on your spouse, and you wanting to come clean, I don't think is a good idea. I think you should live with the guilt and that harm, because for you to go to your spouse and give them, they will have a PTSD response they will then have all kinds of trust issues. You may, you, you're going to unload all of your shit onto your spouse, and you're the one who made the mistake. If you're not going to do it again and you're contrite, then you carry that burden. You don't deserve to unload that on your spouse. And I thought, holy shit, like that makes a lot of sense. And then she said, but my husband thinks the opposite. If you are the person who broke fidelity, you don't know how I'm going to respond. You don't have the right to withhold the truth from me. You have to trust me and, and, and to handle that how I want, but you have no right to not tell me. And then I thought, oh my gosh, he's right. So in a matter of two minutes, I was presented with incredibly polar opposite views and they both seemed perfectly rational and correct. Sometimes research like we're looking at today is like that. Look at all these things. Sugar increases inflammation. Sugar increases insulin. Sugar does this. Sugar does that. It's very logical to say maybe a high sugar diet's not good for you. Then you look at the research and it says, but in these contexts, it didn't really make a difference. So maybe it's not. So that, that I wanted to pull out that very, very weird comparison just to let you know that when things seem completely believable, you may not know the other side of that story and to get a full view of research and then to put it in these contextual scenarios is really, really important uh, because we're going to walk away from this and we're going to say, we're, I, I hope we're not going to say, okay, sugar doesn't matter. So I'm just going to go increase my intake of sugar exponentially because it just doesn't matter. Well, I still think there are reasons it matters and, and to, you know, factor in all those other micronutritional values, habitual values, and, and even gastrointestinal. But all that, I'll leave to the side. Thank you guys so much for this. I, I do want to continue talking about some quality issues like this. We'll dive into some more topics, um, but really appreciate you guys' attention, and uh, we'll, we'll see you next week.